Welcome to Church's Changing Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I'm going to be speaking with Bo Sanders. Right now, he's the pastor of Vermont Hills United Methodist Church that is a spiritual oasis in Portland, Oregon. But I first met Bo when he was the pastor at Westwood Church in Beverly Hills, California, and he created a really beautiful postmodern expression of worship called the loft. And what I mean by that is instead of a pastor speaking from the pulpit um, their truth, what Bo and his companions created there was really a conversation of uncovering truth with a variety of forms using incredible music. He had some great musicians there, film, interviews, conversations, and poetry. And when I first went to the loft, it just excited me to no end to see this incredible expression that really speaks to really another generation of people. And the good news is that Bo has come now to Portland, Oregon, and he's actually my pastor. <laughs> that is fantastic to hear. <laughs> I, have, I haven't heard you say that out loud, so that is amazing. And I just want Bo to share his story of what he found when he chose this church, Vermont Hills, and what your initial ideas were around it and what has happened since, and including the COVID thing. So, Bo, oh, take boy. it from here. Wow. Thank you <laughs> for that introduction. I will always remember meeting you uh, down in, by the way, when, I, when people find out that we are in, that I lived in Beverly Hills, I always have to point out it was 90212. We were in the, the poor side of Beverly <laughs> Hills, the, uh, the poorer side. But it, it was an amazing opportunity. There was a church there, Westwood, and they had amazing sort of cathedral style worship with the robes and stoles and the the, the Schaefer Memorial organ. And, um, you know, the stained glass uh, transformed at night when the sun set and the, I don't know, iron ore or something in that held the panes of the stained glass would transform into this golden glowing amazing different window it was just a, a glorious expression of church from previous century mm -hmm. and they knew that they needed to do something different to reach their surrounding community and provide a space so that their artists and influencers and creatives had a place to not only engage faith in a different way but express their faith in a different way and so we started, uh, I was part of a group that started this second service over in the old chapel, a different part of the campus. And we renovated it and made it sort of a, a sound stage slash coffee shop slash worship space. It was one of the coolest things I have ever done in my life. I don't know if I'll ever get an opportunity quite like that again. LA was the perfect place to do an experiment like that. Mm -hmm. And people responded. It was, it was incredible. And we were able to both attract and empower the exact kinds of people that we were hoping to. 
And so, you know, we're, we're just down the road from UCLA. So we had some smarty pants in the room. We had some, <laughs> we were just down the road from Hollywood signs. So we had some people who were artistics and, and creatives uh, that did an amazing job. We found this musician. He was just one of a kind. He had been a worship leader at a mega church before um, he came out and had to thus leave that setting. Never thought he'd serve in a church context again. Felt the call, responded to our post where we were looking for a musician, and he wrote music that came out of the community and for the community. And we sang songs. It was it was one of the best experiences of my whole life. It was incredible. And he was such a gifted musician. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, where it gets interesting though, is that in 2016, I left LA to come up to Portland. Um, I got a really amazing opportunity to be a visiting professor of theology at a seminary up here, seminary I had graduated from. And that's a huge honor to come back to your alma mater. And during that year, I attended, I think it's like 32 churches. So every Sunday I would go to at least one, but sometimes two and sometimes three. If my students were serving someplace, if I had heard good things about a place, if they were worshiping there, I just wanted to see what was available in the community. And I got to admit that after the loft with its unique ecclesiology, (laughs) because the thing that people don't understand about what we did at the loft is that it's not a shtick or a gimmick to get more people to come to church. That that wasn't the goal. It was actually to decenter the worship space and to democratize, to share the story, to give voice to different perspectives from age and gender and race and culture and background so that we could facilitate people sharing a part of who they were and their unique perspective so that we all were enriched and saw a fuller picture of the divine. Correct. And and of humanity, thus. So every Sunday I would drive home from visiting these, and eventually my my wife had started going to do these visits with me, but eventually gave up. And uh, I would come home and, and report back to her what my experience had been that morning. And I just found myself getting more and more agitated, not by the performance or whatever you want to call it, the experience, but by the ecclesiology, the view of the church that was operational. Because when everybody's sitting in a pew, looking at the back of each other's heads, staring at a stage where everything that's coming is unidirectional, just one directional, and it's usually rehearsed and pre-scripted, one of the things I figured out is it doesn't matter who comes to church. It only matters that people come to church. But who's there doesn't matter because they don't contribute anything. They are spectators at a spectacle. Mm -hmm. And so they're not participants. To really facilitate being church a new way has to be interactive has to be conversational, however you want to frame that. And so I started dreaming 
on Sunday afternoons when I would be driving back from these visits and I got this little bug in the back of my head that said, if I ever get the chance to be in local church ministry again, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the best of what happened in the sanctuary at Westwood because it was pretty, as far as mainline worship goes, they did it well. They did did. it really beautifully. And I'm going to take the best of what we did at the loft and here, here's what I want to do. I want to hybrid and have it be in one meeting, in one worship service. Because the only downside of what we did in LA is that all of the influence, money, and power was in the sanctuary and all of the growth was in the loft. I may be overstating that, but let's say 98%. And so I knew that long-term, that's maybe not that sustainable. They're making it work, but they're a pretty unique context. To do it here in Portland uh, in a much smaller context and a much less racially diverse, culturally diverse context, I really wanted to see what it would look like to have one congregation with one worship expression in one worship space And to see what it would look like to have the best of the tradition and the hymns and the liturgy and the prayers of the people and the call to worship and the homily and all that, you know, everything. And splice in new elements that were interactive. So what I did is I found this little church that had gotten under the weekly attendance where the denomination is comfortable with you having a sustainable trajectory for a future. And they were about to get put on the endangered species list. (laughs) You do not want to go on this list because once you do, you start working for the denomination. You work for the district. You're not completely in control of your own government and governance anymore. So you want to stay off this list. And so I made him a proposal and it was the simplest thing I've ever come up with. It was a three-part plan. Step one, we take everything that you do that gives you life, makes your heart come alive, and makes the world a better place, and we do more of it. That's step one. Step two, we stop doing everything else, no matter whose feelings it hurts. So, like, they love step one. (laughs) (laughs) And then step two, they're like, ooh, ooh, we, we were with you. We were with you. And then I said, step three. I come from an evangelical church planting background. I'm going to bring my evangelical toolbox and I'm going to expand our bandwidth so that we can broadcast what we're doing and find more people who want to come and do step one with us. Beautiful. They said, let's do it. That's what we did. So I came in and the first thing I bought And I kid you not here, I went to a pawn shop and I bought a Sawzall for $18. It's the best $18 I've ever spent. And I chopped up the pews and I I gutted the worship space with their permission, of course. And we converted it into sort of a coffee shop slash worship space hybrid. And the reason that's really important is... It matters what's at the center of the room. 
So if you're going to have conversation as the centerpiece of your service, it helps if it's physically at the center of the room. So you have to have a flexible worship space that is inviting and is not one directional so that it can be interactive. And then just, you know, as fortune would have it, these pews that we got rid of, and we donated some to like different groups who wanted them. And it was great. It was a great experience. But these pews had end caps that I was able to repurpose and for free, reusing the hardware off of the pews, I was able to make a dozen coffee tables that now provide our space with its shape. So every week, every Sunday, a table is the main event of our gatherings, not the sermon. I've decentered the sermon. It's either at the front introducing an idea or it's at the back and it's interactive, conversational. The main event of our gatherings revolves around a table. So on the first Sunday of the month, it's the communion table. And on other Sundays of the month, it's a tall top table where I invite somebody like Beth to come to the table and talk about her passion or her insights or part of her story so that there's a different voice that's heard bringing the, you know, the meat, the content of the day. Mm -hmm. Then on some Sundays, the main event is the coffee tables where I will throw out an idea or a question and I'll say, now turn a circle up around these coffee tables and talk about it. And then the sermon that day is actually them, the congregation, telling me what they talked about. So it's fantastic. It's much different than the loft in some ways in that it's not quite as artistic or, I mean, what we had done at the loft was so incredible because it was an immersive experience. It was. The, the way the lights interacted with the flat screen TVs and we could move around where the musicians were. We just had some technological savvy in L.A. that uh, I, ha- I don't have yet in Portland. And it enabled us to do some really powerful things. But the advantage of what we're doing at Vermont Hills is that we have all of the aesthetics of the worship space with the stained glass and, you know, some other elements that actually in some sense make it a much more inviting atmosphere in some ways. And I actually, I have really learned to appreciate this hybrid model. So that was all before COVID, right? Right. And you had some ideas about, okay, the church is going to grow by X amount, by X amount of time. And- I did, I did. And you know what's funny? We It almost came to pass. So when I proposed that three-point plan yeah. to the church council, I guaranteed that we would double worship attendance in the first year, which we did. And then we would double again two years later. And we almost did it, except for this darn pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) We almost did it, Beth. But I have so much time to reflect now because, you know, this last two years has been so different than the previous two years here. But um, I knew that we were on the cusp of really 
a critical mass. So, you know, in any congregation, in any organization, there is a point at which, you know, they talk about like economy of scale or something like that, where the numbers make sense that you have enough people and enough resources, energy, time, treasure, that you can pull off the ministry that you're called to. Mm. And we figure that our number is 80, that if we have 80 people average on a Sunday because of church attendance, that probably means that there are about 150 people that call this their spiritual home, Mm -hmm. just because people don't attend every Sunday anymore. And that if with giving patterns the way they are, that that also enables us to take care of certain items in the budget that are ministry-oriented to help us actually connect with our community and take care of what we are called to do here. And so we figure 80 is our, that's our sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And that's when we know that we've hit sort of a sustainable critical mass where there's enough people that it feels full and vibrant. We can have children's ministry and, you know, other things. And so, yes, I did make that guarantee and I came, we came oh so close, (laughs) but um, the good news is we just reopened after you know, being shut for two years and online only. This is only our third week of being open. And I know it was Easter, but one thing we are celebrating is that there was that exact number of people participating in worship on Sunday that lets us know that we have the reach that we want to connect with the people that we want to do the ministry that we're called to. And so I am actually praying a very different kind of prayer these days than I've ever prayed before, which is I am thanking God for some of the challenges that we in institutional organized religion are facing after these last two years, and that maybe it will wake us up that being right-sized is far more important than sheer growth. Mm -hmm. And that maybe with fewer people coming in person on Sundays, more people will see both the need and the advantage to tear out those darn pews and stop making everybody face the same direction and for all the talking to be coming from the stage. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a mighty prayer there, Bo. <laughs> So what what have you learned uh, through this COVID? Or what have you learned through this these four years of what your initial idea was and how it's panned out? I have come out of this with two very deep convictions, one old and one new. Okay. The old one is without other people to reflect the light of God back to you, it is very dark. You can't see that well. When you are in quarantine, uh, like I've been, I'm I'm partnered to somebody who is immunocompromised, so we have to be of the ultra most careful all the time. The world and your access to the divine, your perspective, is so limited if you are not seeing the face of God reflected in the face of your sister and brother. Hmm. It is the people of God who are a thousand little mirrors that reflect 
the beauty of the divine to each other and for each other. When you're around people who are shining light and goodness in your direction, you have a better picture of what God's really like and what God's doing. It's necess- It's absolutely necessary. And I have no interest, really, in, in being a part of a religious expression where only a few people get to talk. It's, it's just too limited of an experience and an expression because there's not enough difference and definition and, and timbre you know, going on. It's fine. And, and what they say might be true, but it's just like, it's like playing a flute, right? And a flute's a beautiful instrument, but if it's just the flute all the time, you're like, I need a little more. Right. And so when you make church, when you try and be the church this different way, it's adding rhythm and bass and vocals and harmony and melody and it's symphony. And it's just so much more beautiful than the one instrument. Not that there's anything wrong with that one instrument. And it's not that the, that instrument's playing badly. It's just that it's one instrument. So that's my old conviction. Okay. Here's my new conviction. Hybrid is the future. We're just going to have to embrace that everything is happening on at least two channels all the time and to embrace it and enjoy it so that Having an electronic way to tune in to what's happening in the sanctuary isn't an inconvenience or an afterthought. That's actually a primary way of being and experiencing, and here's where I'm going to go further, contributing to the worship experience. And if people are just sitting at home and watching what's happening in the sanctuary, we're back to where we were, right, with Church Mm 1.0. But to try and figure out how to have those who are joining you remotely contribute to what's happening to those who have gathered in person and for them to be interactive with each other, I think this hybrid is the future. So what we've tried to do is make sure that every week, whether it's the liturgist or the prayers of the people, or even if we do the passing of the peace, Sometimes we'll send the Zoom room to some breakout rooms, and then we'll do our sort of thing in the sanctuary. And when we come back, it's important that the people in the sanctuary hear from the people on Zoom so that the people on Zoom are contributing to what's happening there and that it's give and take and it's actually interactive. In communications, you're always communicating at least two things, one that you may mean to and the other that you may not be in control of. And that can be in body language, that can be in tone of voice, that can be in unintended optics, you know? But we're always communicating at least two things. And once you embrace that, then you can start thinking like, okay, well, what's the second thing we want to communicate? Well, it's that those of you who have joined us remotely are of value and we want to hear from you. And so that is a deep, deep conviction. And so every week we try, you know, we, we debrief the previous weekend and we try to say, like, how can we do this better? And whether that's through upgrading technology or that's from changing the way we facilitate a gathering 
to really value those who have joined you remotely, who are at distance, so online and in person, that you're facilitating really two worship experiences at the same time. And the hope is, if you do it well, that it's really one dovetailed experience that really comes together in a beautiful way. I have an example of that, Bo, that um, how you have managed to shape and form people that go to Vermont Hills. It was on Christmas Eve, and I was part of the group that got left out of the service. Something happened there. But the beautiful thing was all of us that that were on Zoom, we created our own worship experience. Well, there was there was somebody who played an instrument. You know, we brought our poetry. We 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 created this beautiful worship expression. We found our candles. You know, we sang Silent Night, and it's like, well done, people. I mean, Bo, you should a big bow to you that everybody felt so empowered to continue that expression of, yes, we're all a part of this and we all contribute to worship. I love that story so much. And I, so we're in, we're, some of us are in the worship space and the internet crashes. Total side note, I learned a valuable lesson that night because after the service, I was so distraught that we had put so much work into this thing. And then the internet crashed, right? It all came crash. You know, I was, I was horrified. And I kept saying of all nights for this to happen, that's what immensely, that's what was going through my head of all nights for this to happen. And I just had an epiphany, a light bulb went off. And I said, oh no, wait, this didn't happen on Christmas Eve and that's a bad thing. This actually happened because it was Christmas Eve. I realized that what had happened is over the two years of being at distance, anyone who had ever come here and signed on to the Wi-Fi on their phone, we had never all been in the same place at the same time before. And because everybody was at the Christmas Eve service, we overloaded the server and our internet crashed. (laughs) But... To go home then, and I was just mortified that we had told people, you don't have to physically come to the service. You, you can attend, you know, and you and you have candles and we're going to be fine for the candlelight service. And I just felt like we hadn't done what we had promised that we would do and invited people to do. I got home and my wife, who was at on that online service, said, Bo, you, you can't believe it. Like, this person who was in New York read a reflection. Yeah. And this person, one of the youth in the played an instrument and this and that. And then we prayed. And I was like, it sounds like you all had a better time than we did. It sounds incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was it was a worship service that I'll always remember because it was so special. Yeah. So um, I'm curious because people listening to this are thinking, wow, he took the pews out. Wow. He an existing church with people that are doing church in a certain way for who God knows forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, What were the challenges? What were some challenges that you uh, faced? (laughs) Uh, We did face some challenges. I have 50 hilarious stories from my first year here. I'll tell you two of my favorites. I just think they're hilarious. 
first Sunday, getting ready, I had bought some of those sticker name tags. So I had invited guests. I had invited some new people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't even, uh, hadn't updated the website or anything. This is just personal invites. And uh, this church had, you know, the really nice name tags that are like, I don't know what to call them. They're like imprinted. You know, they're like forever name tags. Mm-hmm. But it draw, it is, draws such a contrast between insiders and outsiders. So I just wanted everyone to wear the sticker name tags so that you couldn't tell who was a first-time visitor and who was a long-time member. Well, one of my people who has become one of my great friends here and is 100% into all of the changes, but week one didn't understand, came up to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm putting out name tags for new people. This person said, they're only new to you. We know who they are. And I said, no, no, no. Actual new people who have never been here before. And this person said, why would anyone come here? I said, why do you come here? Wow. This person said, these are all my friends and this is where I do, you know, my ministry. But like, why would brand new people, like it was that, and I realized this is what I'm up against. And like, that's a mentality that comes really over 10 and 20 years of trying new things and just none of them working. Yeah. And so you sort of resign yourself that, and I'm not being crude when I say this, this is an actual conversation that I was told about later that you sort of take on the mentality of let's enjoy being together as long as we can. And then the last one of us who's alive, just turn out the lights and lock the door. Yeah. That's when an in, when an organization or, or an institution is root bound, like a plant that's been in a tiny pot for too long, the roots begin to grow around itself. That's in, that's a root bound plant. And you have to really be careful because people will love this thing to death. They love it so much, but they will love it to death. You know, and, and part of leadership, I guess, at that point, point is to jam your fingers or a spike in there and you got to start prying those roots apart. That's tough love. And then just two other funny things. When I got here, every inch of every wall of this entire building was covered with something. Old furniture, boxes. I've never, every inch of every wall it was so much clutter around the edges. It shrank the floor space in here, the actual usable space. And so part of one of my things I had to make up, like a uh, policy is we are not a museum for unwanted furniture. <laughs> we are a family and this is our family room. This is our living room. We do some living here. And this is a house of God this is not a museum. These are not artifacts. If we don't use them, they go. And so by decluttering the place, we freed up so much. I mean, not only does it look better, we freed up so much usable space. There's more floor area. So the last story I'll tell you is that the choir loft, uh, which we had to move in order to you know flatten the space when we took out the pews, when you when something like that is built in, like if you have a built-in cabinet in your home or there's something that's built in, the things that accumulate 
in it and behind it are really just unpredictable. There's no way to have an idea. You can't know what you don't know, you know? And so two really funny things came out of this. When we took out the choir loft to move it, I found an order of worship from 1974, I think it was, 72. And I just thought it was one of the most amazing things I had seen. So I announced that next month, because it had been a communion month or a communion service, that next month we were going to do that liturgy and that order of service exactly as it was in 1972, but which meant I had to ask my little <laughs> choir to learn that song that the, the big choir had sang back in 72. And um, people loved it to do yeah. a liturgy from the past and just to honor that. And that this thing was actually, you know, had fallen behind the pews in the choir loft and had been back there for almost 50 years and then, to, but to do it, it was just a very cool thing. And I titled my sermon exactly what the pastor had titled that sermon back then. And it was just a really, really fun celebration. But, and then the last story I'll tell you, because these are all just the kind of challenges, you know, that you find behind our piano. And we, we used to have an organ too, were just piles of choir music and like piano songbooks and stuff. It really looked like very disheveled. And so I asked my musician at the time, I asked her to clean up that area so that, you know, because as we open up the space, people are going to be able to see back there where they had it before because we took down the modesty rail, right? As we're opening up the space to flatten it out. I said, people are going to be able to see that. Can we clean that up a little bit? And she did. And it looked, it actually looked beautiful. But I noticed this little room behind the organ, like a vestry sort of room behind the organ and it was piled up with like organ books and all sorts of stuff, like in shoes, like organ shoes. It looked like a museum back there. And so I, I said, hey, thanks for cleaning up your space. It looks great. What's the deal with that little room? And she said, oh, that's Eleanor's stuff. And I said, well, could you ask her to clean that up? She said, oh, she's been dead for years. <laughs> And I realized that Eleanor had been the last organist. And when she passed, no one wanted to like, or felt empowered to or whatever to clean up her stuff. And just, it was like Eleanor's closet wow. when I was there. So, you know, we cleaned it up and I kept Eleanor's shoes to like honor, right? I, but I thought it was pretty cool as I have them because they constantly remind me of, oh, she's been dead for years. And yet she still occupies that space. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of those things that uh, my friend Peter Rollins, you know, he tells a story about, uh, and I lost my mom several years ago. And that's why the story hit me so hard is that sometimes when you lose somebody like this, who's really important to you, they know they're dead. It's that we have to convince each other, right. To come to that reality. And so Sometimes like around the holidays, my mom is as alive as she ever was before she passed on to the next chapter of her life because we make holiday plans like, well, this is what mom would have wanted mm-hmm. and mom would be proud of us. And 
right? And so the spirit of my mother is very powerful around the holidays. But you have to be careful with that in church buildings because those ghosts, you know, if we want to talk about it that way, we do have the ghost of church church's past, but we also need to be aware of the, the ghost of church's future. We need to listen to multiple voices. And um, I just think that declaration, oh, she's been dead for years, was one of the both funniest and most shocking sentences I could have imagined hearing there. But the for that person to still occupy that space and for no one to feel permission or compulsion to clean out that closet, for me, it was just became a metaphor for ministry. And whether that's our endowment fund or our youth room when we don't have any youth anymore or whatever it is, it's amazing how those spaces are occupied by the presence of those for whom they were so identified, you know? Yeah. And so the ghost of Eleanor is one of my favorite um, chat. It was a challenge to sort of, for me to come to terms with, why certain decisions were made and not made. So nice. Well, Bo, um, how will pe- how can people um, you know find out more about your work or Vermont Hills? We have a website that has lots of links uh, for people. They can listen to highlights of the previous weekend. It's tough, you know, because we do a little podcast, but. It's just tough. It doesn't translate exactly. So we do this little highlight thing and so you can get a feel for it and the flavor. But, uh, you know, Vermont Hills United Methodist Church is the website there. I also have a WordPress that I used to be very involved in, but right now I am working on uh, a doctoral degree. And so I've been putting my energy towards dissertating. And so I haven't been putting a lot of energy there, but public theology is one of my passions. And when I was posting there, it was a really nice space for people to actually engage new ideas and be able to ask us, you know, follow-up questions. So those are probably the two best places to connect. Okay. And we'll put those in the show notes. Oh, thanks. Okay. Bo, um, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your story and uh, where you've landed now and um, the continuing journey of Vermont Hills and your experiments in public theology. Can you uh, leave us with some sort of a a blessing for folks that are like you trying to do some new things in spaces that um, uh, are more traditional? Yes. I want to start with a question. Okay. We often know what things cost to do. Buy a new computer, go to online giving, hire a new musician or a children's minister. We know what things cost to do. The question is, what does it cost not to do it? Mm. Who are you not connecting with? Who are you not attracting? What are you not doing what gifts are not present. So both the positive sense, but also to try and account for and attend to the negative aspect. So 
if I were to pray a little prayer, it would be, you know, in the mode of Elizabeth Johnson, who always prays at least three directions. So God who is beyond us, the God who is at work within us, and the God who is at work all around us. I know this divine mystery as she who is, one of my favorite phrases. I do believe there's a God. I do believe God's spirit is at work in the world. And I do believe she knows what she's doing. And as we say yes and follow along and take baby steps left and then right, we will find our way forward through this really tricky terrain that we find ourselves in. Thank you so much, Bo Sanders, for sharing your joy and delight with us today. Yeah, thank you. This has been a real treat. I appreciate the invite. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.